Christianity in America used to be something that most people automatically assumed. It was the norm. It was the expectation. However, that's no longer the world that we live in. For many, the tenets of Christianity are just too problematic to follow. There are too many reasons why it's no longer believable. Like, Christianity is too exclusive. How could you believe there's only one way to God? Christianity is too restrictive. Who are you to tell me how I should live my life? There's so much evil and suffering in the world. How could there be a God who would allow a world to exist like this? The Bible isn't historically reliable. It's just really a legend that's been adjusted throughout history. Or the church is too corrupt. How could the church be responsible for so much injustice in the world? Science disproves Christianity. Evolution clearly shows us that the Bible could never have been true. Join us as we spend a few weeks working through these objections as we try to find answers to these questions and address how Christians should respond to them. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm pumped to be here. I'm glad that, that you're here. I didn't think I was going to be able to be here. Some of you may have heard that I contracted uh, the shingles virus a few days ago. Um, actually, uh, right before a couple days before Easter, and it has been an interesting week to say the least. Um, never experienced anything quite like this. Extremely painful, but I know that many of you've been praying for us and uh, for my family. I haven't been able to touch my girls for a week because uh, Claire, our youngest, hasn't had the chickenpox vaccination yet, and so it has just been an interesting week. But you've been praying and by God's grace. Hey, I'm standing on my two feet and I'm here today. You know, so thank God. Um, Thank God, for, thank God for that. Well, if you've got a Bible, um, I want you to go ahead and open it. We're going to be in the Gospel of John today. Uh, John is in the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be in uh, John's Gospel, which is, is the fourth. And so uh, you can go ahead and be making your way there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's okay. I'm going to put the verses on the screen for you. And then uh, as well, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to be able to give you one today for free, your own copy. You can grab one at the resource area in the lobby on, on, on your way out. So we're going to be in... Uh, John. As well, we're continuing a series called Objections. Uh, how many of you just out of curiosity, you brought back your Objections book, hold it high up in the air, high and proud. Um, this is a completely free resource um, that, uh, that, we, that our team put together for you. If you don't have one yet, you can grab one today as well, completely for free. But we're essentially taking six weeks to try to address the, the six most common objections to Christianity and uh, try to just jump into it and, and talk about it. And so today we're on week two. Um, how many of you are doing the Luke challenge as well? Uh, we're encouraging everyone in our church to read through the Gospel of Luke and to do it with a friend. I've actually uh, asked one of my good friends, a guy who doesn't come to the bridge but is a good friend of mine uh, in town to read this with me. And so we're going through Luke. If you haven't done that yet, that's okay. Uh, tomorrow is Luke chapter 6. And so you can uh, jump right in with us. And then well, as well at the back is a community group guide that is uh, a place that uh, place you can take sermon notes and stuff. Today is on page uh, 66. And so you can open that there and uh, take sermon notes and whatever you want to get ready for uh, for community group and maybe discipleship relationships or whatever uh, you would have. So today, I'm going to try to answer the uh, objection and ad address the objection of intolerance. 
and uh, why people feel like Christianity is too restrictive. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word intolerance, but uh, when I use it in reference to Christianity, I mean uh, that Christianity to many people seems to be too restrictive uh, and tells people how they should live their life. Christianity seems to be intolerant of other lifestyles, behaviors, beliefs, and seems to try to make everyone live a certain way and tell everyone how they're supposed to live their life. Now, just out of curiosity, anybody in the room today, you just love having someone else telling you how to live your life. Anybody? No. We're, we're Americans. We're 21st century Americans. We absolutely uh, hate that. And so I know that many of you as well have been unfortunately uh, burned by the church. I know that uh, some of you have been told that if you didn't adhere to all the rules and the regulations, then you really weren't good enough to be a Christian. Some of you were told that if you didn't show up to Mass and put money in the offering plate and fulfill all your duties, then God was upset with you, He was mad with you, and you had to go uh, to confession in order to make Him happy with you again. Some of you were told that if you didn't use the right Bible translation, then you're going to hell, which is crazy. Some of you were told that if you didn't wear the right kind of clothes, then you weren't allowed to come to church. Some of you were told that if you didn't change your lifestyle, then God hates you and doesn't want anything to do with you. And I apologize for that. Genuinely, I just want to say up front that I apologize for that. I know that many of you have perhaps, and I don't even want to do a show of hands, but I know that many of you have probably been burned by Christians or churches that were just judgmental and hateful and told you that if you didn't straighten up your life, then God wouldn't accept you. And just for the record, to start off, that is not Christianity. This is not at all consistent with Christianity. In fact, Jesus spent a great deal of his time in the Gospels rebuking people for, for teaching things like that. So that's just not, Christ, not consistent with uh, Christianity, which also leads me to say, just because someone uh, is religious doesn't mean that they're on the same team as Jesus. <laughs> Can I, I mean, that is just, it, just because somebody is religious doesn't mean that they're on the same team as Jesus. And I just want to throw it out there. And so if someone, just because someone is religious doesn't mean that they're on our team, okay? And, and, and I just have to say that uh, up front. I, I do, however, we do have some people on our team who are kind of kooky. <laughs> I'm just going ahead and admit that up front. Uh, just kooky, crazy Christians, you know, that just do some things. And I'm like, why are you doing that? That is just not what you should be doing. And I don't at all you know, pretend to be the perfect representation of the Jesus way of living. But hopefully we're trying to do a good job you know, and represent who Jesus is and what he has done. So if you've ran into one of those kooky Christians, I'm sorry, okay? Give us a little grace. Give us a little grace. And hopefully today I'm going to give you a picture about what Christianity really is all about. And it is all about Jesus, okay? And so we're going to look at a passage today that I think is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, and I think it paints an unbelievably beautiful picture about who Jesus is and what he is really all about, okay? All right, so John chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 1. John 4, beginning in verse 1, this is how it goes down. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, somebody was keeping count, verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. It's interesting, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. 
Now, so the story begins with uh, Jesus setting on a, out on a trip from Judea to Galilee. And what's interesting about uh, Jesus' travel plans is that his GPS sends him through Samaria. Now, in Jesus' day, all the Jews who would have been reading this, when they heard the word Samaria, would have gasped, oh, you're kidding. He, went, he actually went through Samaria? He, he went through Samaria? Those, those wicked Samaritans. I can't believe that he would ever even travel through Samaria. They bypassed it. They couldn't stand the Samaritans. Well, a few centuries earlier, earlier in 722 B.C., uh, the Jews that were living in the northern kingdom were literally taken captive by the Assyrians. And what followed was an interracial exchange. So some Jews were deported to Assyria, and some Assyrians were imported to the northern kingdom. And so the Jews who remained didn't entirely relinquish their true worship of God and decided rather to intermarry with the Assyrians, which then gave birth to a new ethnic group of people called the Samaritans. And what developed over the next few centuries was just an intense level of segregation and discrimination between the Jews and the Samaritans. But if you notice from verse 4, it said that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was forced to go through Samaria like he lost a bet. And he just had to go, go through Samaria. Or like there weren't any other routes in the world for getting to Galilee. There were definitely other routes that were able to be traveled that Jews had traveled for centuries. The term here, he had to, means that it was of necessity. Or it was necessary for him to go that way. See, no Jew would have ever felt the need to go into Samaria. But Jesus said that it was necessary for him to take this route to go to the place that everyone else avoided. Now, for some of us, maybe this would be similar to how we view some uh, parts of you know, downtown Wilmington. Wait, you mean you actually go downtown <laughs> Don't you know that there is a lot of crime down there? Don't you know that the culture is different? Don't you know that there are a lot of tattoos down there? Don't you know that there is poverty? Don't you know that the schools are the lowest performing? Let's just keep our distance from that God-awful forsaken place. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus opts for a different route, a route of inclusion, a route of diversity, and a route of relationship. And here's why. The reason that Jesus could go through Samaria, the place that no other Jew would ever go through, the reason that he could go through Samaria is because he was more concerned about people than prejudice. I'm getting ready to preach, all right? He was more concerned about people than prejudice. You see, what's unfortunate is that oftentimes... The most religious people seem to be the most prejudiced people. See, religion can unfortunately lead you to separate from people who are different than you, who believe differently than you, who may have different values than you, who have a different culture than you. But Jesus isn't primarily concerned about religion. Jesus is primarily concerned about people. He actually ticked off the religious leaders of his day all the time. And it was the religious leaders that actually got him killed and murdered and crucified because of really how anti-religious he was. 
He just didn't have time for empty religion because he was more concerned with people. And some of you are like, you get him, Ethan. You talk about those prejudiced, you talk about those awful prejudiced people. Well, what's true of all of us is that we, each of us, have a tendency to fall into prejudice. What happens is that you begin to develop prejudice for people who are different than you because maybe they have a skin color that is different than you, because they wear clothes that you would never wear, because they vote differently than you, because their, uh-oh, because their lifestyle is different than yours. And rather than love people who are different than us, we would rather loathe people who are different than us. And we separate from them and avoid them and don't pass through where they are. We would rather create caricatures of them rather than have conversations with them and just throw bombs at them because of how different they are. Is this America, anybody? <laughs> I mean, is this, is this America or, 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 or what? This is why Paul says, and it's a mandate, he says that the church has to be a mosaic of all sorts of different kinds of people that are in the city where you live. All sorts of different kinds of people, all sorts of different kinds of colors, and all sorts of different kinds of shapes. The church is supposed to be the place where we can come together with our differences and have conversations and have unity and relationships. Now, how can that happen? Because that just doesn't happen. How can, how can that happen? How could you be willing to set aside your differences for someone? The only way that you would be able to do that was if you had something together that was in common that was greater than the differences that you share, which is Jesus. And Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, you dirty Samaritans, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he may create in himself one new man. Everybody say one. One, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How many bodies? One body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is, and unashamedly, this is one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons why I feel like we have to be a church that is going to be a multicultural, diverse church. It has to start with us. The church for too long has been at the end of the spear rather than being at the tip of the spear, leading in this. And God's design for the church is that we would be a mosaic of all sorts of different kinds of people who come together centered on the gospel. And so we want to be a, div a diverse church, and, and we're, we're growing in that by, by God's grace. I had a conversation with someone this morning. Uh, afterwards, she, she came up to me, and she says, uh, I'm Hispanic, and I was sitting beside an uh, African-American person who was also sitting beside a Caucasian person, you know, right on the, on the same row. And so we, we want to be a church that's diverse. And when I say diverse, I mean diverse ethnically, generationally, economically, politically, maritally, single, married. We want to be a church that has all sorts of different kinds of diversity because that is when we become the mosaic of God's church that he wants us to be. That's what, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't find, you know, the Jewish church that he could go to that had the music that he liked and he could stay away from everybody else that didn't sing music like he did. He went through Samaria. For Jesus, this wasn't something that just was happenstance for him. This was intentional. He pursued it. it he had to go through Samaria. So let me, let me ask you a question this morning. 
What is your Samaria? What is your Samaria? Who are the people around you in this culture that you tend to have the most prejudice towards? Who is it that you proverbially need to take a trip through Samaria? When is the last time that you had someone at your dinner table that had a different color skin than you? When is the last time that you had someone at your dinner table that voted differently than you did? That's what Jesus does. Jesus intentionally, purposefully goes through Samaria to people who are different than he is. Now look with me at verse 7. It's a little tense in the room at the moment. Verse 7 says this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This just, gets, this just got crazy. Not only is Jesus in Samaria, he is interacting with a Samaritan. And not only is he interacting with a Samaritan, he's interacting with a Samaritan woman. This is a no-no in Jesus' culture. And then he's not only interacting with a Samaritan woman, he asked for a drink from her. He asked to drink from her cup. This would have just been insane. He's getting ready to put his Jewish lips on the cup of a Samaritan woman. This is unbelievably radical. To drink from her cup would have been an act of close friendship and fellowship and intimacy that he is inviting her into. How many of you like to drink after other people, by the way? <laughs> want to get their germs? I want to drink after somebody? Jesus says, I'll put my lips on your cup unbelievably radical. This is why it just throws her off so much. She looks back at Jesus and be like, Jesus, what, what, in the, what are you a Jew doing asking for me a drink, a woman of Samaria? She's just blown away. This has probably never happened to her in her entire life. And here's what I wonder. How did she know he was a Jew? How did he know he, she was, I mean, how did she know that he was a Jew? He didn't tell her. He didn't say, hey, by the way, I'm a Jew here today. He, he didn't say that. The, the only way that, he, that she could have known that he was a Jew was because of his, either his appearance or his accent. He looked different than her. You know, he, he may have talked different. Maybe, maybe he had the Star of David tattoo on his forearm or something. You know, I, I, I just don't know. But it was clear that he was of a different ethnicity than her. It was clear that his skin tone was not the same as hers, that he probably talked differently than her that they probably didn't have the same barber, that they probably didn't grow up on the same sides of the track. And she's just blown away. She's never, perhaps, had a man like this come into her neighborhood, never had a person like this ask to drink from her cup. And what's interesting about this interaction is we see that it is happening in the middle of the day. It says that it is it's in the, the sixth hour of the day, which would be about uh, noontime. Some commentators say that this would have been really odd for a woman to be all by herself and to retrieve water during the middle of the day, during the hottest time of the day. Typically, this would have been done early in the morning when it is still cool. 
And so what many commentators say is that the reason that she is coming all alone in the middle of the day is because she was likely an outcast from society and wasn't accepted to come to the well when the other women came to the well. And what we're actually going to see is that she is a person that has quite a dirty past about her life. Some past failures. She's messed up. She isn't quite living the upright life. And who... Who meets her where she is and invites her into a relationship with him? Jesus. Here's here's what this teaches us about Jesus. I, I love this. Jesus meets you where you are, not where you should be. He meets you where you are, not where you should be. See, many of us have a hard time feeling welcome at church, don't we? Have a hard time coming to church because you know that you have messed up. I know that you've got perhaps a broken family, failed relationships, maybe a failed marriage, trouble with the law, and many of us don't feel like we are good enough for Jesus. Here's just a, something to help you out. Nobody in the room is good enough for Jesus. All right, we are all messed up people. I know you look up here and you're like, man, Ethan, that guy, he's, he's perfect. You know, he just, everything in his life, he just, he's just got it together. He's so perfect. If you talk to my wife right after this, she will completely clear that up for you. I am by far, and I am one of the most messed up people in the room. I continually, all the time, think about myself. I feel like I am the most important person in the room. And I feel like everyone else should just worship and bow down to me and make uh, me feel valuable. And, and, and worth. that's how I feel all the time. And I have to continually like say, that is not how I should feel. Continually, over and over again. See, we all come into this room with different parts of our life that is, is broken. No one in this room is Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> no one in this room is perfect except for Jesus. He, he is the only one who is perfect. And here's what I love about Jesus is that he meets you. He meets you where you are, not where you think that you should be. He meets you where you are. Anybody in the room just going through a divorce Jesus, he meets you where you are. Any, anyone uh, fighting a substance abuse or an addiction, Jesus meets you where you are. Anybody have a bad track record? Anybody got some pain and hurt and issues and trials in their life? Jesus meets you where you are. He entered your world before you were willing to enter his world. See, Jesus doesn't stand back at a distance and be like, when she gets her life cleaned up, when he gets his mess together and he starts living right, then I'm going to accept him. Jesus doesn't stay at arm's distance and not associate with you until you clean up your life. That is religion, by the way. That is what religion does. Jesus, he came to you as the son of God and he entered your world before you were willing to enter his world. And the way that we say it here at the bridge all the time is Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you should have died, and he conquered the grave that you couldn't conquer. Here's what's different about Jesus than every other religious leader that has ever lived in the history of the world. And that's a bold statement. Jesus' leadership as a religious leader wasn't just something that you would look to and admire and want to follow. Jesus' life actually accomplished something effectual for you where you are at. Here's what what I mean by that. The cross and the resurrection aren't just like, wow, they make a great story. Wow, they make our religion so great. 
I just love the story of the cross. I love the story of the resurrection. Wow, what a great story. Whoever thought about that was just good. That, that's not the way that you should think about Christianity. Jesus went to the cross because he had to accomplish something for you. It wasn't just he was being a martyr for the sake of being a martyr. And then he conquered the grave because he needed to accomplish something for you. And Jesus, when he went to the cross, the way that the New Testament talks about it, is he took on your unrighteousness. What that means is that God decided that he would take all of your guilt and all of your unrighteousness and God would put it on to Christ himself, who was completely innocent and guiltless. And then God would take all of Jesus' innocence and guiltlessness and take his righteousness and he would give it all to you and he would transfer it to you. That, that's the gospel. That, that's the gospel. The gospel. Jesus isn't just somebody to be admired because he's a cool leader. No, Jesus actually accomplished something for you in your place. And so then when you meet Christ and you understand Christ, you stand in Christ and you're forgiven regardless of your past and your pain and your brokenness, you stand in him. You say that's and that's what the gospel is. And here's here's I'll say it this way. This is this is what I'll say about Christianity. Christianity isn't about rules. It's about relationship. It isn't about rules. It is about relationship. Now, I know some of you have a hard time with Christianity because you just think it is all about rules. Like and you guys have a whole book of rules. Isn't that what the Bible is, is a book of rules? No, it's not a book of rules. Of course there are things in the Bible about the way that you should live, but Christianity isn't primarily about rules. It is about uh, relationship. It is about Jesus. Amen? All right, now look at me at verse 10. He goes on, he says this. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who, it was, who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Oh, okay, so Jesus responds to her and tells her that if she knew who he was, then she would be asking him for a drink of water uh, rather than him asking her for water. And by the way, he has a living water. What is that, Jesus? Is that like a new bottled water company that you, know, you invented? What is this living water that you were talking about? And then look at verse 11. He goes on and says this. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. What are you talking about? And the well is deep. Where could you get that living water, Jesus? And are you greater than our father Jacob, uh, who actually gave us this well and drank from it himself, and did his, as did his sons and his livestock? Your water better than Jacob's water, Jesus? What are you trying to say? Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So what in the world is this living water that Jesus is talking about? What he is doing, which is often his pattern, is he is using a tangible reality around him, something where he is, and he's using that reality as an illustration and a metaphor for a spiritual reality. What he's doing is he's actually quoting an Old Testament reference from the prophet Jeremiah, which says this. I'll put it on the screen for you. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, God, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water what jeremiah is essentially saying is that there are two ways to live there are two ways to live this is huge if you're going to actually understand christianity the first way to live is to 
it's a metaphor, is to drink from the living waters, which is God. So if you think about water, water is one of the most necessary realities to life, right? You can go without eating food, you know, for weeks if you have to, but you can only go without water for a few days because water is the substance, it's the sustenance of your life. And what Jeremiah is saying is that just like water is the substance for your physical body, God is the substance for your spiritual body. So true life, true living flows from the fountain of God, from a relationship with him. That's the first way to live. The second way to live, uh, he says, is to try to dig your own well, to try to provide your own water. What he means is that you try to sustain your life by the things, things other than God, which could, be, which could be anything. It could be drinking from the well of a relationship. Anybody ever done that in the room? It could be drinking from the well of a career, drinking from the well of substances, drinking from the well even of your children. And Jeremiah is saying that none of those wells actually have the ability to sustain your soul. They're just utterly incapable of satisfying the thirst of your soul. I love the way that C.S. Lewis, he, he writes and he says this. He was a 20th century atheist that became a Christian. He says this. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, I think too often Christianity gets a bad rap because people think that you better, not, you better not become a Christian because if you become a Christian, you're not going to have any more fun in your life. That will be the end of your fun. Christianity just steals all of your fun. That's not at all what Christianity is about. God isn't an angry dictator in heaven who is a bully who's trying to think about how he can keep you from having fun in this life. No, he is a father who loves you as his child and wants you to experience the ultimate life that he has designed for you to live, the abundant life. He wants you to give up making mud pies in the slum and offer you a holiday at the sea. Jesus says it this way in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, here's what that means. It's not until you find Jesus that you really start living. It's not until you drink from his living water that you're able to find the sustenance that you need. And Christianity isn't about keeping you from joy and happiness in your life. It is about helping you see that true joy, happiness, and satisfaction is found in Christ, in Jesus. Now look at me at verse 15. We'll go on. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have, I have to come here to draw water. She's like, this is a great idea, Jesus. I would love to get whatever water you're talking about because then I wouldn't have to make the trip every day to come get the water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. What? Oh, whoa, Jesus, what's up with the curveball? I mean, she like, she just said she's ready and she wants to drink of the water that you're providing. Why are you talking about her husband? Why are you going to bring up that? 
Like, anybody, any of y'all got a friend like that? You know, just likes to bring up your past and your pain. You're like, don't be talking about that. I don't want to talk about that. Don't be talk- I want to talk about something else. And Jesus, Jesus says, uh, go, go bring your husband. What? What is he doing? Look at verse 17. He goes on to say, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wow. Jesus knows her better than she realizes because he is not just a man. He is the son of God. He knows some of the most intimate details of her life. He knows her past. He knows her pain. He knows her struggle. Now, why are you going to bring all that up, Jesus? Why are you going to bring that up to me? Here's here's why. Jesus loves you enough to confront your brokenness. Jesus, he just, you don't like this, but Jesus loves you enough that he is going to confront your brokenness. See, to love someone doesn't mean that you accept and approve of every action, every habit, and every behavior of that person. Loving someone means that you love them enough to confront the things in their life that may be detrimental and destructive to their well-being. And Jesus loves this woman enough that he's not going to be silent when it comes to the most painful parts of her life. And he's going to address it because it's only through her pain that she's going to be able to understand what it means to drink of living water. And here's what's true of all of us. Jesus loves you enough to confront the brokenness in your life. He loves you enough to confront the pain and the hurt in your past. And all of us have brokenness, and what Jesus does, he's going to address it, then he's going to heal it, and then he's going to lead you in a new direction, a new path, and a new hope for your life. That's what he's doing here. Now look at me, verse 25. He goes on and says this. The woman said to him, he tries to change the subject because she doesn't want to talk about her past, so she tries to make Jesus... Seem like she's religious, she says. I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She doesn't tee it up any better for Jesus. As someone who is familiar, she is, with the teachings of Judaism in the Old Testament and the prophecies about the Messiah and the Christ, the anointed one, the coming one. She tries to sound religious to Jesus and starts to talk about the Messiah. And then Jesus stops. He looks at her and he looks into her eyes and he says, I am he. I am he who you are talking to today. It just doesn't get any more dramatic than this. Now look at me, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, they were cowards, what do you seek? Why are you all talking with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar, wow, and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, which is the Messiah? The disciples come back from town, and they are just absolutely freaked out that Jesus would be having a conversation with this woman. And then she immediately, this is good, I'm glad she left before the disciples screwed it up. She leaves, 
she leaves and goes back into town and she tells everybody that she's met somebody like she's never met before in her entire life. This must be the Christ. Here's what um, happens to this woman. She immediately changes. She is immediately transformed. She, she is changed on the spot. She's an outcast. She, she's a misfit, but then she goes back into town and she's empowered with a message. And she doesn't, she leaves her water jar, which is her possession. It's a, it's a valuable possession that she needs to use on a daily basis for her life. And what does she do? She just leaves it there. Everything else becomes kind of meaningless once she found out who she had interacted with. But in light, in light of who she's just met, none of this seems important anymore. She's transformed into a leader. She's immediately just a missionary and telling the whole town about Jesus. Here's, here's what this, this teaches us. When you encounter Jesus, he changes you from the inside out. He changes you from the inside out. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus at any point in the story, you know, he really got her hooked. Did he whip out the Ten Commandments? Okay, now here's your first lesson on the commandments and the way that you should be living your life. Did he get out the Old Testament and say, now here are the laws that you need to start living and performing if you want to be a changed person? Does he do that? No. No, no, The Ten Commandments are are great. They're they're fantastic. I mean, Jesus wrote them for crying out loud. I mean, they are important. But Jesus doesn't take her to the law. He doesn't take her to commands. He loves her right where she is. Right where she is. And that's what happens when you meet Jesus. When you have an encounter with ultimate love and truth, changes you it changes you from the inside out see religion religion tries to change you from the outside in religion says well if you just change the way that you dress if you change the way that you talk if you change what you drink if you change what you do with your time in your life then you will become a good, a good person that's what religion does the gospel goes for your heart the gospel goes for your heart and recognizes that the only way that you'll really be changed is from the inside out having a heart that is actually changed, that actually loves, loves God. See, religion, religion says that if you obey, then God will accept you. That's, that's intolerance. That's intolerance. If you keep all our rules, if you do what we say, if you live the way that you're supposed to live, then God will accept you. That's intolerance. That's not Christianity. The gospel is that God accepts you right where you are, therefore go and obey. Therefore, go and follow him. It's a fundamentally different way of approaching God. Do you see? It's completely different than religion. Look at me now at verse 39. It's our final part of the passage. It says this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Do you know that if you're a Christian today here, you've got a testimony? You've got a testimony If you've been changed by Jesus, if Jesus has changed your life and your heart, you have a testimony. And many Samaritans in the town come and believe. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. you got to be kidding. And he stayed there two days. He actually hung out with them. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you say that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I love this. The woman essentially becomes an evangelist immediately. <laughs> Not a televangelist. There's a different, there's a different team. Becomes an, an evangelist and just tells people about Jesus. Just tells her town about this guy that, that she, she met. And what's happened? 
Other people start to meet Jesus. Other people start to hear about Jesus. And then he actually stays for the weekend. He stays in their home. He stays in their world. He stays in their culture on their turf. Here's, here's how I'll, I'll wrap it up. Are there, are there rules in Christianity? Of course. There are things that Christianity is going to teach you about the way that you should live your life that are hopefully, at the end of the day, beneficial for your own good. But Christianity is not primarily about rules. It is about a relationship, a relationship with Jesus. I love the way Jesus says it in John 3. He says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you know that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn you? Do you know there's enough condemnation in the world already? Jesus came to the world rather to have a relationship with you, which means you need Jesus. You need living water. You need a relationship with him. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian, do you have a relationship with Jesus? I didn't ask you, do you have religion in your life? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I'm not talking to the person that's sitting beside you. I'm talking to you. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? He comes to you. He enters your world. He wants you, and he offers his grace and his mercy and his love and his peace to anyone who will accept it. But you have to accept it. And then Christians in the room today, where is the Samaria that you need to be going through? Where is Jesus calling you to live your life like him? Loving people, concerned about people, and more concerned about people than prejudice, and more concerned about letting people have a relationship with him than having rules and religion. Where is it for you? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today and for what Jesus has done for us. How unbelievably amazing it is so god we thank you today we thank you for jesus we say all this in christ's name amen